I want to start with a little warning before we get into today's episode. You may want to grab a box of tissues. This conversation is raw, it is real, and it gets into the depths of the messiness of grieving. Welcome to the Pause to Remember podcast. My name is Amy Pelkey. I'm a practicing CRNA yoga teacher and mother to one son here on earth and one daughter who was stillborn. If you are a healthcare provider who has experienced pregnancy or infant loss, this podcast is for you. My goal is to offer resources, conversations, and mindfulness-based grief tools to help providers like you build the courage to acknowledge and process your emotions, the strength to carry your grief, and resilience so you can preserve your career, relationships, and overall well-being while honoring the memory of your baby. I want to assure you that you are not alone in your grief. I am thankful that you are here today. Let's begin. Thank you for joining us for this fourth episode of the Pause to Remember podcast. I would like to welcome today's guest, Whitney Jablonski. She is a practicing CRNA in the Toledo, Ohio area, and she is going to introduce us and tell us about her daughter, Colby, who was born in March of 2019. Welcome, Whitney. Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, so this is the first time I've talked about Colby in this kind of setting. So I'm going to try to hold it together and it's just going to take me a, a little time to get, get there. The story starts out that um, my husband and I met and we got married and we bought, we wanted to start a family. And um, we always had in mind two children. So I had our first pregnancy, Collins. Um, we got married or we had no issues getting pregnant. We had her at, she came a little early at 36 and five and um, no issues, great pregnancy, great delivery, healthy baby. About a year later, we wanted to expand our family. So we um, were trying to get pregnant again. And the funny thing is, I was having gallbladder issues after I had my daughter, Colin. So I was going to get my gallbladder removed and then we could try to start having um, another baby. So I go see a surgeon. Um, he's like, yes, you need to get your gallbladder out. I go through all this testing get all the blood work done, get all the scans done, set up a, a time and a date to have my gallbladder out. And I show up at the hospital like any other patient, go through the pre-op testing. Um, I was like 31 at the time. So all the questions, could you be pregnant? No. Answer these questions. Okay, let's do a urine sample just to make sure this is a basic thing we do for all women in the childbearing ages. So I give them a urine sample, get in my little gown, get dressed. And then the next thing I hear at the door is a knock, knock, knock. And in comes a nurse. And she's like, um, did you know you were pregnant? <laughs> um, no, I, what? No, I have no idea. No, I'm not pregnant. I'm here to get my gallbladder out. I work at the hospital. I give anesthesia to everybody. I check all my patients charts to make sure they're not pregnant. I'm not pregnant. You must've dipped someone else's urine. Can we give another urine sample? Uh, just to verify this is my urine because I don't, I don't, I can't be pregnant. No, I just had labs done a week ago. I had blood drawn and it was negative. Um, my HCG was negative. Um, I, it's no, I'm not pregnant. So we go about this. I give another urine sample. They come in and draw some blood, um, wait about 15, 20 minutes, uh, lights up like a, a firework on the uh, urine dipstick and my blood work comes back that I am indeed pregnant. 
what the heck? No, I'm not pregnant. So then I start crying because I'm getting this news from a nurse before I, uh, you know, my surgery. Um, so they're like, do you want me to go get your husband? I was like, yes. So then he, <laughs> he comes into the little, you know, surgery waiting uh, pod before. And he's like, why are you crying, Whitney? Don't be nervous. Like you do this every day. You're going to be fine. You're getting your gallbladder out. You're going to be just fine. And I just shout out, I'm pregnant. <laughs> and he's, we're just so surprised. So um, new day, we're not going to have surgery. So we, I get dressed. I, they take my IV out and I, my husband and I walk out and we go to have breakfast to celebrate our new found pregnancy that I had no idea that we were going to do this right now. So we just go and celebrate and the time starts to pass and it's just a shock. I was already a couple weeks pregnant. Um, we didn't want to share the news too soon. So we wait a few weeks and around 10 weeks, we start telling people that I'm pregnant, but it was kind of odd because I was going to take time off work for my surgery. So when I come back the next day to work, everyone's like, hmm, why didn't she have surgery? So it's kind of on the hush hush for a little bit. Fast forward a little bit more, mother's intuition. Do you ever get that? The, the high mother's intuition. Um, I was having this pit in my stomach around 12 weeks and I faintly remember standing in my friend's driveway at her house telling her something's wrong with this pregnancy i don't know what it is but i have this feeling and she would reassure me whitney nothing's wrong it was just a surprise you're fine you have collins is fine she's healthy nothing happened you're already you know 12 weeks you're already out of your first trimester um, everything's fine okay i you know put that that pit back down um around 15 weeks i had the same feeling I just had this feeling that something isn't right. Talked to my husband about it. I even remember telling him, what do I, excuse me, what do I do? And he's like, well, I don't think anything's wrong, but explore this feeling. It's you're having this feeling. This is multiple times you said this. So then I go to the OB and I'm, I feel like I'm just one of those people that are being over anxious about things. And I, I have nothing to go off but my gut feeling. And I tell my OBGYN, something's wrong. I'm not sure what. And I don't want you to think I'm crazy, but I have this really gut feeling that something's wrong. And she um, was telling me, okay, um, at this week, I'm, at this point, I'm about 17 and five, 17 weeks-ish. And so she's like, well, why don't we just send you to MFM? You keep talking about this. You can't shake this feeling. Let me just reassure you that everything, nothing that we know of is wrong. You don't get your anatomy scan until 20 weeks. They don't like to see you any earlier than that just because of the size of the baby. But I was adamant that I just had this feeling that something was wrong. So I go to MFM. They're kind of hesitant to see me. Why are you coming in? Um, all this, all these questions. And my OB had talked to the MFM doctor. So they, they do scan me at 17 and five. Um, I'm in the room and then they start doing the scans. And I can see the ultrasound face, the ultrasound tech's face. She's trying to be strong, but they're finding more and more things wrong during the scan. And I keep looking at her and um, they can't say anything. They're not the doctor, as, as we all know, they can't say anything, but just the look on her face. And the baby's so small, they do, they do such high-tech scans. I think I know what I'm looking at. I'm not sure that I know what I'm looking at, but I felt like she kept going back to her heart. Another caveat to that story is my husband's also a nurse. He had just 
started his new job in the SICU and he was actually working that day and took his lunch break to come down for the scan because that's the only time we could get into MFM just because of the timing and my work schedule and his work schedule. So he took his lunch break and about halfway through the scan, I could tell he's getting a little antsy just because he's at work. And I'm like, you know what, why don't you just run back upstairs? Like tell him the scan's taking a little bit longer than it needed and I'll be fine. Like, I'll be fine. I'm fine. She's scanning. So he, you know, hesitantly runs back upstairs and the ultrasound tech um, was like, oh, you know, we can wait till you get back. And I'm like, no, no, we'll be fine. And when she made the comment um, after he had already left that we should probably wait for your husband, then that's where it kind of solidified for me that that gut intuition was coming to fruition. So, and then I started crying and then she asked me, why are you so, are you, I can, I don't know exactly how she worded it, but she knew I was upset and she squeezed my hand. So then she leaves the room and she says, I'm going to go talk to the doctor. Why don't you go ahead and give your husband another text? So I texted him. He talked to his supervisors and, you know, was telling him what was going on. So he came back down. Then we waited. Um, she, the ultrasound tech came back in and said that um, one of the MFM doctors would like to speak to you. We gathered all our stuff and went to his office. And I remember going in his office and there was a fetal concerns nurse standing in there. And then the doctor with all her scans up on this like big screen and they start going through the scans. And I just start telling you everything that's wrong with her. And he, his gut feeling told him it was trisomy 13, trisomy 18 were the two main um, issues that he thought she had. So of course, at that moment, you're just stunned. You know, you're almost 18 weeks pregnant. Um, your second baby, you always feel them moving a little bit sooner. You see her on ultrasound flopping around in there. And then they start going through right away what your options are. I'm in Ohio, so, you know, they start talking about abortion. Um, they start talking about carrying the carrying the pregnancy full term. Um, and then um, blood work, amniocentesis, and everything like that. Um, just all this information within, you know, 20 minutes. And you have to try to make a plan on what you're going to do with your unborn child. So, of course, my mind, my mind's racing. Like, what do you do? How do you, how do you, how do you even take that information and like move along? So we opted for um, an amniocentesis that day. So I could kind of, I'm a very, um, I want all my facts before I make any decision. I like to have all my ducks in a row. I like to figure out exactly what our challenge was going to be. So we went that day, they take you from the office and they took me back into this other room and they did the amniocentesis. And within 48 hours, we got the results that she was diagnosed as trisomy 18. With her extensive anomalies, she probably wouldn't make it too long after birth with some of the things that she had going on with her. So we went home then, had to drive myself home. I didn't, I was stunned with the, the, the information they just told, told me. And how do you go home and do you even go through everything that was just given to you? All these facts, all these, all this information. We talked about it. We cried about it. And the only option I felt I had was to let her live her life as it was meant to be. So with all that information that we had just received from the MFM appointment, um, we went home. Uh, I think within like 48 hours, they had called me just to confirm the trisomy 18 is what she had. And she had full trisomy 18. 
Um, and there's other versions of trisomy 18, but she had a full trisomy 18 with some cardiac issues. Some, um, there were some brain issues with her brain stem um, and some kidney problems as well, um, which we would find out more during the pregnancy of the way I was presenting with clin clin clinical features from her kidneys not working. With information um, is... I need all, all my facts. So we started making all these appointments. We went to um, a pediatric specialist, a cardiologist, and we would do ultrasounds, echoes on the baby, echoes on Colby. So we would go to all these appointments to follow up. And we came to learn that her heart condition, um, if she was a, um, I guess, quote unquote, um, a normal baby with no trisomy 18, her cardiac issues weren't going to be the thing that caused her to lose her life. The doctor that we worked with said that, you know, this issue could be fixed by surgery. So if she did not have trisomy 18, she would be a candidate for heart surgery and she would live a full, happy life. Um, but the trisomy 18 was the complicated factor with her heart issues. And of course, I didn't believe my am amniocentesis. Um, I didn't believe the scan. So um, why not go to University of Michigan um, Children's Hospital just to make sure that everything is correct? Because they always say, you should have more than one opinion. So we go to U of M that same day, actually. Actually, the same day I got my first um, echo, um, they could get me in at like two o'clock and it was like 110, it's an hour drive. And I was like, I will be there. I know I might be like five minutes late. My husband will drop me off at the door. He can go park and I will run in. I am not missing this appointment because they won't be able to get me in for a few more weeks. Um, and at that point with them talking about abortion, the laws in Ohio and Michigan differ a little bit. Ohio's 20 weeks, um, Michigan's 24 weeks. I wanted to make sure that I'm having all these facts in order, even if I didn't want the facts. Um, so we go to U of M and they do a scan again. And I knew what they were going to say. You know, they say, Whitney, you had blood work. You had an amniocentesis. We are not going to tell you anything different than your, you know, your doctors down in, in Toledo, because these are, these are, these are the facts. Of course, that's not what you want to hear because it's your baby. So at this point, I think I'm about 21 weeks. Um, and I'm just trying to make the choice that I would, I wanted to make her proud. I've already loved her. We've got the nursery ready. Um, Collins, her biggest sister knows about her. Um, it's my second pregnancy. I feel like I already have a little belly. I feel in her move and I prayed about it. I cried about it. I didn't talk about it, hoping it would go away. I would talk about it. All these different roller coasters you go through. So at the end of the day, my husband and I decided that the best course of action would be to, um, let her tell her own story. So we just put it in God's hands and let whatever's going to happen, happen from 21 weeks to 37 and five. I carried her full term until um, I delivered her a lot and she lived for 40 hours and I got to hold her and talk to her and give her a bath, change her diaper, um, take family pictures, take her home, spend the night with her in my own bed until she passed away in my arms 40 hours later. And I don't wish that upon anybody having your baby just be here and then in a blink of an eye be gone. And then after that, how do you figure out how to move forward? And 
be the same person that you used to be prior to this situation. Everything moves forward and you have to try to move forward as well, especially when you have another two-year-old toddler that needs their mom. So after that situation, I figure out how to even function and think about our future as a family and how I get myself out of bed every day and get back to my quote unquote normal routine of going back to work and being a mom and navigating being a healthcare provider and providing care to other people when at moments I feel so empty inside. Yeah. Your cup is empty. And how can you pour into somebody else's cup who needs care when yours, there's nothing there. Right. And to go back to, we do a lot of, um, I do a lot of OB. So to put myself in those situations on top of the people I work with, I delivered where I work, uh, which is, was amazing at the same point, because these are all my friends. They were with me the whole time. They were with me from the diagnosis to the delivery. They cared about me. They cared about her. But to go back every day, peeling that Band-Aid off and seeing the room that I had her in, it's hard. It's, it's really hard. hard. Yeah. yeah. And it's unique to healthcare providers to yeah. be in that situation and to have that trigger of there's the room that I had Col- Colby in yeah. and to relive it, just seeing the room. Exactly. For some, just pulling into the parking lot or walking through the door of the hospital before they even get to the room can be a trigger. And especially like if any type of unforeseen circumstance comes in and I'm involved in the care, like I, my coworkers are very good about keeping me a little sheltered from that, which I am very grateful for. Um, But if I am the only provider there, you know it can be hard. I just think about these, these situations and it can be just very emotional at times. I think that doesn't even paint the whole picture of everything because it's not just your emotions. It it seeps into your bones and to your soul. And it feels like a weight that you're carrying and nobody else can see the weight or feel the weight. So you feel alone carrying that weight and until you hear other people saying, yes, I feel that weight too. You feel like you're the only one who's going through it. Part of the reason why I want to have these conversations and share with other, other providers who are going through this, that they're not alone. Like this is a really normal thing. Super normal. And And to talk about it is super normal. Yeah. And I think that we are trained as clinicians to put everybody first, the care of the patient, the needs of the department and exercising self-care and saying, I'm struggling. I'm drowning in the weight of my grief. I'm, I'm having a hard time getting out of bed and coming in and putting on my scrubs today. We aren't trained to say that that's okay. We're trained to just keep on going. Exactly. Yeah. And to say, everybody else (laughs) and to say, man, I really need to step back and take care of myself. Out of curiosity, did you take a full maternity leave? So that was very like, it was a very gray area. It was not black and white um, area. Um, I took six weeks for a vaginal delivery. But within that time, I had another surgery as well. Um, I had had a kidney stone afterwards. So that that kind of like played into it as well for an, so 
it, it played into my maternity leave, but yeah, I took six weeks before I came back. Um, but that's another thing in healthcare. Um, I still, I still had a baby. I was, I still had a funeral. I still needed bereavement days, even though it was on my maternity leave. I feel like, um, that area could definitely be improved for sure. Yes. Yeah. And I almost feel like, you know, having another child like you, um, beforehand, most of us take 12 weeks if we have the PTO and, and, you know, the FMLA or whatever, I feel like after losing a baby, you need 12 weeks as well, because you are recovering physically for those first six weeks. And like people forget that your milk still comes in. Yeah, exactly. That was horrible. Like it was one of the lowest points in my life. Yeah. It was, it was almost as bad as kissing our daughter goodbye. Cause your body's still going through this whole thing. So I had her on a Friday. We went home on Saturday. She passed away Sunday morning. I was in the ER Sunday night. And then I had surgery for a kidney stone on Tuesday. Oh <laughs> and then her funeral was on Friday and my milk was coming in. So it was just like, oh my gosh, like this just, it was just, oh, your body's still going through hormones and, you know, cause you know how it is to be a new mom in general. Um, and then you're still, your body's still reacting as a new mom without your baby. Yeah. And you're still, I don't know about you, but I was still up at night because I had horrible insomnia. <laughs> I couldn't sleep. Right. And so I was just like, I don't even have a baby keeping me up and I'm still not sleeping. Like I was so angry that I was awake at night. <laughs> yeah. It's like a, this horrible, vicious cycle that you go through. Yeah. But yeah, your body's still adjusting. You just, you know, you just gave birth to a, a, a baby. Yeah. Your hormones and everything. It's just, it's, it's wild. Did you do anything on maternity leave in terms of like therapy or other self-care massage th- therapy, anything like that? I did start seeing a therapist. Um, I actually saw her um, while I was pregnant, which was really helpful because just the day-to-day um, day-to-day questions you get from people. I was having a lot of anticipatory grief, um, and a lot of, um, just a lot of emotions about carrying a baby that I knew that was going to die. You know, I'm six months pregnant then I'm seven months pregnant. I'm eight months pregnant. I look pregnant. I have a belly. I'm, you know, you obviously could tell I was pregnant. I'm doing, I'm working, I'm going out in the world and I have Collins with me and you go to her appointments. Oh my gosh, congratulations. You're pregnant. What are you having? Are you excited? How do you answer that? When you know the fate of her, do you be honest? Or you just say, yes, you know, I'm having a girl. I'm excited. Or do you say, yeah, I'm having a girl. She has trisomy 18. She's probably going to die. I'm not sure when she's going to die. So I'm just taking it day by day. And the, those little questions, when I look back at it, were just extremely difficult. Yes, they're not little when you're in the moment living it. Yeah. And I'm not sitting at a desk in my cubicle. I am running around the hospital in my scrubs and clearly look pregnant. Um, I couldn't hide from it. Seeing a counselor prior to having her did help. But I felt like um, in the moment, I felt like, how is this helping me? All I do is stay here and cry about it because I'm just, I don't know how to put my thoughts into words. Oh, I just felt alone because nobody else I knew was going through that situation. I had like four months just to stew over this. Any little thing, I would be sitting there. Oh my gosh, I haven't felt her move. Do you think she she passed away? 
um, because the risk of her dying prior to being delivered was also very high with all her issues that were going on. Um, My amniotic fluid was really high. I was just having some other medical issues. I I went into preterm labor at like 33 weeks. Um, So every time stuff like that would happen, I would prepare myself just for going in and having having her, though she had already passed away. So I I was very hypersensitive to that. I think I went up to my OB's office like daily asking them to scan her or check her heart rate uh, because I haven't felt her move in a little bit. And every time I'd be like, yep, this is the day today she, she passed. Now I need to figure out, then I would be in mom. Okay, now I need to figure out, okay, who do I have to call? Do I have to, who do I have to get to watch my other little girl? You know, you go through all these steps just because you get into work mode, you get into clinician mode. You get into how do I take care of everybody else so I can go have this baby and then get back to my life. You know that as much as you want to go back to life before you learned about Colby's diagnosis, that life will never exist again. So it's almost like you're grieving the life that you had in addition to grieving your daughter's life. And I don't think people understand how much you grieve both because life is never, is never the same again. No, because I feel like it, I know any, but as soon as you find out you're pregnant, you're excited. You, you start thinking of names, you start thinking of how your life's going to change. You start thinking the impact the baby's going to have on your other child. And again, I'm a doer. I was a doer and a planner. I've changed significantly. I think since prior to having her, um, I was very organized. I made lists all the time. I wanted the nursery done probably the minute I got home when I found out I was pregnant, just to have everything in place. I wanted to know the gender because we already had a little girl. Do we need to start getting boy stuff? Do we need to, you know, your mind just starts going wild. We went and got a new car because I needed a big, I just had a little, um, you know, a little Camry. I'm like, I need, I need to get like a SUV or a minivan. I need, you know, we got to get another car seat. All this stuff, your mind just starts racing and you just start planning your life for two children. And then at 20, 20, 22 weeks, it comes to a, a stop. Like we don't, we don't need all this stuff anymore. I even felt like we had to like move because six months after Colby died, another little baby comes along and I'm pregnant again. So how in the world am I supposed to bring home this new life into Colby's room? I can't give another baby Colby's nursery. That's something that hit me like a tall brick. So then I told my husband, oh my gosh, we need a new house. We can't live here. We can't bring a new baby home to something that's Colby's because that's her room. So then another big adventure starts. I'm four or five months pregnant and we're house searching. <laughs> so that was that was a big, you know, thing. We didn't think that through very well. So we we get a new house and I'm pregnant again. And being pregnant six months after already losing a baby was another very, very, very tough nine months of my life. Every appointment I would mark on my calendar. Okay, one of my 12 weeks. Okay, when can I get my blood work done? One of my 20 weeks that um, I'm going to MFM, everything comes flooding back of what just happened, you know, less than a year ago. Am I only having this baby because Colby's not here because we were very set on two children. So is my baby a replacement for my other baby? All these feelings that as a mother, it's kind of embarrassing to say because would my youngest be here if Colby was here? Was that my, our plan all along that she would be here no matter what, even saying it out loud is, is hard. So I don't, I don't know the answer to that, but did Colby was Colby's job or Colby's 
purpose to be here and leave so we could have corn? Or would corn be here no matter what? Would we would we have got pregnant and had two babies under two years old no matter what? But those are thoughts that I had and concerns that I had. And um, I don't know the answer to that. I would like to think that we would have all three of them. Um, and she was meant to be no matter what. But that nine months being pregnant again um, was very challenging, was very hard. I could not even think about anything until that baby was in my arms and I knew she was safe. And then she was a stinker and she went, I carried her forever. I felt Collins came at 36 weeks. Colby came at 37 weeks. Corin was going to stay in there forever if I let her, I think. <laughs> so it was like, almost, and I carried her to 39 weeks. I'm like, this is, she's just being stubborn now because <laughs> she wants me to go, you know, quote unquote, 40 weeks. But I felt like she never was going to come out and I could never have that sigh of relief that she was healthy and okay. So that's another huge challenge I had again for nine months. And I look back at my journal and read things and I'm like, geez, oh, Pete's like some of these thoughts are just real and nobody talks about them having a baby after a loss and just your anxiety. And on top of all that, it was COVID. Um, so COVID hit March March 17th, because I didn't work. Once COVID hit um, March 17th, I will not forget this. I'm Colin or Corin was due in June. So March, April, May, June. So I still had like three months left in my pregnancy, two and a half months left. And I told my, my work, I'm, I, I can't work. <clears throat> I can't, I mentally cannot work. Nobody knows what COVID is. We're having patients come in. I'm seven months pregnant. I lost a baby six months ago, or now this, at this point, it's a year ago. Um, I cannot lose this baby. I can, I cannot get COVID. I, I don't even know what would happen, but my thought was she, corn was going to die. Like I cannot work. So I, I took, I took, I took time off. I just said, I'm not working. I can't work. I can't be around people. I'm just going to isolate. I have to protect this child with all my might. So then that was another level of added stress where nobody could be in the delivery room when I had Corin. Um, I was going to doctor's appointments by myself because my husband wasn't allowed in the room. What if they would have found something wrong with Corin and I'm there by myself because my husband can't come in the come in the building? Um, what I have to do? Text him? Oh, they can't find out. Like what? I, like my mind just goes nuts. That now on top of having this baby, I can't. I'm, I feel like I did it alone up until my delivery. And then, you know, when you're at the hospital, everyone's wearing masks. You're, you know, you're, you're scared to death as it is because you don't, I have this flashback of her just dying or um, Colby dying. And I I don't want Corin to be this to happen to her. It was just another added level of stress that I, I look back to it and it's really, it's really horrible to think about. I think COVID created a whole layer of challenges. Yeah. And I think that having that feeling of being alone after Colby passed away, that feeling of being alone during COVID for a grieving mom is like magnified in a way that you can't even describe with words. Yeah. 
And then they like changed. Yeah. And then, so when you were on maternity leave, COVID was still going on, whatnot, going back to the hospital, how were you re-entering the workplace? COVID was in full force. So I had my youngest June 9th. And then I went back to work, I think like in August. Um, and COVID was still crazy. It was just a blur. You know, I was constantly scared coming home to my new baby. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would, sh- you know, shower before I left work. I would, you know, nobody knew what was going to happen. And if your newborn baby got this, you know, it's just a whole nother layer of added of anxiety and stress to my anxiety of people being around my new baby. So I felt like that has changed. I feel like nobody saw her for the first six, nine months of her life. Like I remember we were, cause when I had her, only one person could be in the room with you. It was your one person and they couldn't leave. If they left, they couldn't come back. I remember my, we drove, stopped at my mom's and I, I mean, my mom like looked through the window at her because I didn't want her touching her. My mom works in healthcare. She works at a hospital. I, I was afraid that she was going to get her sick and she was going to die. You know, I look back at that and I, it's probably very silly now that we know more about COVID and stuff. But in that moment, I was doing everything I could to protect the newborn. Yeah. And, and to protect yourself yeah. from losing another baby. Yeah. So real. So real. And I was just, you know, I think I was at a different level than a lot of people with it because of what had happened a year prior. I think that's a really normal human response to everything <laughs> yeah. you went through. Like and mama I think, bear comes out. Yeah. But I think that sometimes <laughs> we have these unrealistic expectations that we're not human and we're not supposed to have all these feelings and we're supposed to be just put on that stoic face, walk into work, give the care, do whatever the professional responsibilities are for the day. And that we're not supposed to feel along the way or say, Hey, I can't do this. So I think you should just maybe take a moment and acknowledge how much you listened to yourself when COVID hit and you said, I need to protect myself and my emotional well-being, my mental well-being and my baby. And I can't come in. And I think that that is such a courageous step of self-care that I hope it empowers other providers who have this gut intuition about what that they what they should do if they need to step away from the workplace for a period of time. I hope that that empowers them to make that decision because it's a really tough decision. Very tough. And I remember because um, it was COVID, so I remember we had to zoom in with my therapist. Again, I was still pregnant. And at this point, I was like, what do I do? Do I go to work? Do I stay home? I don't know what's going to happen. And then she, I ex- exactly how she worded it, I can't remember, but she said something to that if you're not taking care of yourself, how can you care for another patient to the best ability that that patient deserves? And I was like, yeah, I would never want to go in and just be such in a tizzy that I can't properly care for this other person's life. Is that going to, and that there's your answer, you know, as providers, like we are, we have taken an oath to provide the best care that we can. And that patient's lives are in your hands. How can I provide the best care that I can when I'm distracted with my own thoughts and my own feelings and my own, and my own baby. So I really had to put that in perspective and my work was very, very understanding. They were awesome they made, you know, they, they were just very understanding and, and saw where I was coming from. 
and I, I you know, I had to do all, you know, all whatever paperwork and, um, and we made it work, you know, we made it work. I didn't have to fear that my job was going to go away. I don't know about you. My work was the same way. And that was a tremendous part of my ability to get through the grief was yeah. knowing that I didn't have that professional pressure to be on the schedule or, you know, do whatever they needed me to do that. They gave me breathing, gr- breathing room to grieve. And that was really helpful. And I'm really glad that your, your work family did the same for you. Yeah. They all very, very understanding. So again, COVID just threw a, threw a curveball at me that I didn't think already being nervous about having another baby so soon after losing one that I was already very emotional about. I just put another layer on it, which you, in the moment, you don't see, you don't see what's happening. But when you take a minute to step back and look back, you're like, yeah, that was a really, really bad period or very, very hard period in your life, in your life. Yeah. If you go back and and look to your re-entry into the workplace, was there one or two triggers that stand out those first couple of triggers that you had that brought a wave of grief back over you? And as you recall that, was there anything that you did to help work through those triggers at work that you think would be helpful for others? So the biggest trigger that I had, um, our call room actually butts up to the room that I delivered in. So in the call room, that would be my biggest trigger. Cause I felt like, cause the heads of the bed, if you would think the wall was in between, they were head to head. Um, and I just remember talking to my counselor about that. And, um, some things that, um, she suggested was if there was, um, a pastor at the hospital, I could go talk to, or I could go sit in the chapel for a little bit. Um, I started journaling that really helps because you don't realize what comes out when you put a pen to paper. Um, and just being open and honest with yourself and it's okay to sit here in this call room and just cry. Cause it's, it's good for you to get it out. Holding it in is not good. Um, so I think the biggest thing was, um, my journaling, um, going to walk on the treadmill, telling myself it's okay. Nobody's here. Nobody's seeing you. Um, it's okay. It's okay to cry and sit here and cry and let it out. Um, it's okay to go talk to the, you know, the, the priest there. That's what they're there for. You know, that's a, um, a service that the hospital provides. And why don't you just go meet him and tell him like what you're thinking? I'm sure you, know, you just want someone to listen. Yeah. And tell you that it's a, it's okay to not be okay. Yeah. And I think we need to remind each other that it's okay to say that you lost Colby in March of 2019. So now we're fast forwarding here. You recently celebrated her birthday just a couple months ago. Yep. Or a month, little over a month ago. Are you still working with a therapist or are you feeling like the work you did was sufficient for where you are right now? What's that look like for you now? I feel like I go back and forth to that. Um, Again, I put everyone else first. So sometimes I feel like I don't have the time to put towards going to see a therapist. I've touched base with her a few times um, during uh, some Zoom meetings, but I wish I had more self-care for myself in some of those aspects. And now that when just like doing this and talking to other people, 
I feel that it's very important to get back on a schedule and not just sweep all this under the rug. Um, I remember during a couple of therapies, she would say, I would say, I'm just, I'm not, I'm doing things that I would have never done before. I feel like I'm very scatterbrained. I feel that I'm just not the same person as I was prior to Colby. Um, and I don't know how to get back to the old me, but still embrace the new me, if that makes sense. So I'm working on finding how to put the two lives together, the, the before and after, um, just in every aspect. Just your friends start to change a little bit. Just the way you interact with people starts to change. And you just have to figure out the 31 years you 31 years you had prior to having this till now. I've only been living this new life for three years. So I'm trying to figure it out still. It's a process. Yeah, big process. I feel like it took about five years for me to realize that the old me was really gone and to come to terms with that and that feeling of scatterbrain. Oh gosh. Yes. (laughs) It's real. It's so real. And I actually felt like going to work was the one time I didn't feel so scatterbrained because everything, like just that going in, putting on your scrubs, going to set up your room, lining up your syringes. That just felt like, Oh yes, I am on top of my game because that routine was actually, yes. And I felt like I, I was on a little holiday for my grieving when I went to work because it was consistent and I was doing the same things the old way, but I did discover that just the way I felt when I left work at the end of the, at the end of the day was different. We kind of talked about this a little bit prior to the podcast about just finding ways to honor our daughters and let their lives continue to have a ripple effect. Yeah. We, in our heads, we wrote a certain narrative of how we thought our babies joining our family would impact our family. As soon as we found out we were pregnant, you touched upon that. And just being open to letting their lives write their own narrative and trying to figure out how to best honor that as they give us little, little indicators. And you had mentioned that you had done a couple of golf outings and raised some money for a local group, Sufficient Grace Ministries in your area, which I'll put a link in the show notes to their website because it's pretty incredible what they're doing. You want to talk a little bit about honoring Colby's life and doing some fundraising? Yeah. So I first want to start off by um, just talking about this wonderful organization that we have available for um, people in this area. It is Sufficient Grace Ministries. And I cannot say enough about this, this wonderful organization. They are an organization that helps families and moms going through loss of perinatal or infant loss or babies with life limiting diagnosis like Colby had. Um, and they just, they're amazing. So you can contact this organization it's completely free for anyone that contacts them and they will come and help you just figure out in the now. So if someone has a tragic event, like a stillbirth, they will come and they will provide the mom resources. They will take pictures. They will do things that you didn't even think about doing, or even have to think about doing because they take care of all of that. 
I was very leery about some of the stuff. I'm like, oh, I don't want pictures when I, you know, of her, especially if she had passed away. I don't know if I want all this stuff, but them providing these services give me some tangible things that remind me of her that I wouldn't even have a thought of. I was planning her funeral before she even passed away. And that is just an awful feeling. So to have somebody just give you some guidance of things that you didn't even think of are just great resources. I can't say enough about this organization. So we decided to try to help make an impact to other women is what can we do in Colby's name to keep her memory alive and to do good for others. So I had this idea of doing um, some kind of fundraiser or my husband's an avid golfer um, or a golf outing where we could just have some friends, people close to us, and we could raise some money and have kind of a birthday party for her on her first birthday. So we organized this golf outing kind of to think about it as her first birthday. Um, So it was supposed to be May 14th of 2020, but that had to get canceled for COVID. So we now just finished our second annual golf outing two weekends ago, and we were able to raise um, over $6,000 to donate to a sufficient grace ministry. Um, And the year prior, we were able to donate them um, $5,000 to do all the wonderful things they do. Um, So I feel like um, that is very healing in a way that I can use our story to try to impact others and help others and keep such a wonderful thing going. Yeah. It's not the way you wanted to keep her memory going. Right. But it's very, I can see it being very healing. And I think that's part of the reason why I started this podcast was just in honor of our daughter and starting to have some of these conversations to normalize difficult feelings. Mm -hmm. I think you touched on that. The world normalize. Um, I always think about this in a way that everyone's going through things. It's just, they keep it behind doors Mm -hmm. and it's, it's kind of like the social, social media aspect. Um, It's not as perfect as everyone claims their lives to be. And that's okay. Everybody has those, those um, issues. Everybody's going through something and to talk about it is very healing and to normalize death and grief and just talk about it. It makes you not feel so alone. Yes. And also to normalize being vulnerable. Yeah. Social media doesn't promote vulnerability. It promotes perfectionism, I think. And trying to have a perfect life when you're grieving is impossible. And I think is pretty toxic to trying to move through the grief. And so hopefully somebody listening to this will say, wow, I'm really connecting with what she's saying because I'm living this as well. Right. And hopefully that'll help people feel comfortable having these conversations. And we talked about this prior to the podcast about starting a virtual support group for healthcare providers. And I started building the landing page over the weekend. Yay. And I think we're going to make this a reality. And if we, if we need to cut this out, we can, but I mean, I feel safe enough saying we're going to be here. And if you need to come 
and with your box of tissues and have some space to have some real honest conversation, we're going to be here to listen to you. Yes, because we know how you can, you feel and just being able to say stuff out loud is healing in itself in a safe space. Yes. And I think it's unique to have it just for healthcare providers because who else is going to understand sitting in a call room right next to where you lost, you you delivered your baby that you lost, you know, nobody understands that unless you're a clinician working in a similar environment or having to go put in an epidural for somebody who's having a stillborn baby or going to the ER for a, you know, if you're an ER physician and, and you're taking care of a trauma patient who is, you know, badly injured and is losing their baby because of the injuries, you know, you just never know where those triggers are going to be. And if you don't work in the clinical setting, you really, truly don't have a perception and in that internalized heaviness that we experience as providers grieving. Right. And I feel like at work, you are, you know, have to have your A game and you just have to take care of that patient. So you push down all those feelings you have and you just keep pushing them down until you're going to burst. So having somewhere where you can actually talk about them and get those feelings out, I think it, it just makes you feel better. It makes you feel yes. more, in, more in control of your emotions. Yes. Stifling your feelings is not healthy. No. I say what you, what you resist persists. Yes. It does. And it lingers. And then it comes out with health issues. I don't know if you experienced any health issues during your grieving period. I know I did. And it just manifests in these weird ways that you don't even anticipate. And then you're like, oh my gosh, that's my body telling me that this is really something I need to pay attention to. Exactly. And in all aspects of your life, health issues, the way you interact with your other children, the way you interact with your husband, you know, everyone tries to be supportive, especially I, I'm, I'm referring to relationships. Your significant other is trying to be supportive of you, but they're not the ones that were carrying the baby. They're not the ones that had the baby. They're not the ones that are going back to work with all these other obstacles that you feel as the mother of the, you know, the baby that you had. It's just a different a different way. And it, they, as, as supportive as they try to be, I feel like they just can't understand it to a level that other moms and women feel in healthcare. Mm-hmm. I think it, it's going to be a great thing to have this little group of women um, to come in on these podcasts and just share their experiences. I was very nervous to come on and talk about it. Um, I think I cried halfway through it, but I had this really empowering feeling right now, um, which I it's very hard to explain, but I feel like a weight just got lifted off my shoulders. I hope that whether you're coming onto the podcast to honor the life of your baby, or you're coming onto the podcast to share your experience, whatever motivates you to come on, I hope it helps others listening. And if others don't feel comfortable coming onto the podcast, I hope coming to the virtual support group feels like a safe space for them to come and share. I think also too, maybe the somebody out there isn't struggling so much with grief. Maybe they have a great therapist they're working with, but maybe they're struggling with how to go to their manager or their department chair or what have you and say, I'm not okay. And this is what I need. And so maybe coming to the group and having other clinicians say, 
you're not crazy. This is what I would say in this situation. And if you're presented with obstacle A, B, or C, these might be some options for you that you could present. Because I think sometimes when you're really stressed, you don't have that quick thinking, that brainstorming, that ability to like have clarification of what you need to say and everything just feels crazy, you know, in your mind. And so having somebody who's not so emotionally tied to whatever is going on could be a really helpful resource as well. So I think we can just see where the virtual support group goes and kind of go from there. I think we're very much in a time where we need to help each other through these difficult challenges because work has gotten so stressful as we're moving out of the acute phases of the pandemic and the pressures that we're having day to day without grief is already a lot. So to add that layer of grief on top of it, I think it can be pretty unbearable at times for a lot of people. And I want people to not feel alone in that, in that feeling. I totally agree. I agree. I feel uh, one thing I just was thinking about when you were talking is sometimes we get these blinders on and we can only see straight. So having other women and other clinicians come in and just say, Hey, if you pop that blinder down on your right side, maybe look at it from this angle. It's like, ah, an aha moment. Like, why didn't I think about that? So I feel like you just get stuck in this tunnel. It can be hard. So just having other people's opinions and stories and advice and just listen would, would be amazing. Absolutely. Well, I think this is a good place to kind of summarize, round up, have final thoughts, whatever. Is there anything else that you feel would be helpful for somebody out there to hear that's grieving? I think the biggest thing is you're not alone. I felt so alone. Someone up giving you a hug or just saying a hand squeeze, anything like that would have been saying, I'm here for you. If you need me, it doesn't have to be a lot. So I feel like if we could just give each other that hand squeeze or hug, it means a lot. Absolutely. Whitney, you have touched me in this conversation and there is no doubt that you are going to touch many others who are walking in a similar direction as the two of us have gone through. And, and I would just like to pause to remember Colby and the way her life is living on through the work that you're doing with fundraising and now this support group and whatever other direction she gives you as time moves forward. Thank you for having me. And thank you for bringing light to my sweet girl. You're welcome. It's been absolutely an honor to me. Thank you. I can't thank Whitney enough for being on this podcast and sharing so honestly about her journey through the grief after losing her sweet daughter, Colby. To any other provider who is struggling after pregnancy or infant loss, I hope Whitney helps you to realize that your feelings are real and that you are not alone. If you would like to join Whitney and I for more conversations, the virtual grief support group specifically for licensed healthcare providers will be the second Monday of every month from 7.45 to 8.45 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Zoom. To be a part of this group, I will put a link in the show notes. Click the link, um, add your 
name, email address, and your credentials. Um, you can just put MD, RN, keep it simple into the form and you will get uh, an email just to confirm that you want to receive emails from pause to remember and then the zoom link even if you are not sure you can attend on a monday feel free to subscribe through that link and you will get an email most weeks from me i try to send something out just so that you know that there are growing resources here at Pause to Remember specifically for you. I would like to also highlight Sufficient Grace Ministries. We discussed it there in the Toledo, Ohio area. I will put a link in the show notes to their organization that was so supportive to Whitney and her family. And then finally, if you would like to support this podcast and the work being done at Pause to Remember, please rate and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. If you could share this episode or any episode that speaks to you or you think would be of benefit to somebody else, please share it directly with them or put it on your social media to help spread the word. Sharing this resource with managers, departments, human resources, the OB departments, please help me spread the word that this resource is growing and here for any grieving healthcare professional. If you would like to financially support this podcast and the free resources that are being offered here, there is a link in the show notes to do that as well. My goal is to get a new podcast up for you by 5 a.m. every Thursday morning. So please follow the podcast on the platform of your preference and meet me back here next week. Thank you for listening.